This is Joel Kotkin. And this is Marshall Toplansky. And you're listening to the Feudal Future Podcast. Our society is being rapidly reduced to a feudal state, a process now being exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Millions of small businesses are near extinction. Millions more are losing their jobs. And many others will be stuck in the status of propertyless serfs. The big winners have been the expert class of the clerisy, and most of all, the tech oligarchs, who benefit as people rely more on algorithms than human relationships. With this, around the world, the middle class is becoming more squeezed than ever, and it's having profound economic, social, and spiritual implications. Here on the show, we're having conversations with business, government, and citizen leaders like you to get to the core of these issues and explore how we can work together to form a better future than the one we're headed towards. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today we're delighted to have three guests to talk about the topic of reshoring. We have J.R. Turner, who is Managing Director of the Americas for NovaCell, which makes films and coatings for various industries. It's part of Chargeur, which is a French conglomerate. Michelle Comerford, who is Industrial and Supply Chain Practice Leader at Biggins, Lacey & Shapiro, uh, a consulting firm specializing in competitive relocation strategies. And Harry Mosier, founder and president of the Reshoring Initiative, a national nonprofit group on the issue of reshoring and foreign direct investment. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Great to be Great here. To be here. Yeah. Maybe just to get started, one of the big issues that, um, and I know this is somewhat um, part of your expertise, Michelle, but um, that fundamentally um, we now are in a world that as Marshall suggested is very interconnected. But we're seeing this, let's say, with the semiconductor industry, where we can no longer produce the critical semiconductors. Um, and um, and the question is, are we going to be in the situation where every time something goes wrong in a critical foreign uh, economy and in a place that dominates uh, something like medical equipment with China or semiconductors with Taiwan, are we going to see supply chain uh, collapses price rises and all that. Um, is this sort of the wave of the future and is there anything we can do about it? Yeah, I know it's, it's a certainly a hot topic right now. Um, you know, one thing the, the COVID pandemic did was really shine this bright light on how fragile global supply chains are. And we've certainly have seen disruptions um, over the past decade or so related to natural disasters, but uh, a, a global p pandemic really took things to a new level. And so now there's uh, certainly a ripple effect that we're seeing as a result of that. Um, Harry can, I know, talk a lot about the history of how we got here in the first place, um, but you know, certainly goes back 30 plus years to chasing low wages and, and things like that, that shifted a lot of our manufacturing uh, away from from the U.S. Uh, to cheaper labor markets, frankly, at the time, um, and we've we've grown up since then in, in a lot of different ways, and and 
seen a lot of advances in technology, which have an opportunity to shift that, which I know we're going to get into, but, uh, but right now we're in this uh, sort of gap zone where we're realizing how fragile these global supply chains really are. Harry, uh, you want to give us a little bit of how we got there? You know, I remember, you know, covering Silicon Valley in the 70s and 80s in which we dominated the semiconductor industry. And um, and obviously now um, whole industries get brought to a halt because we, we can't produce things. So how did we get here, Harry? Uh, pr- primarily the difference in manufacturing cost and FOB or Xworks price between the U.S. and offshore. So we've we've done surveys, others have done surveys, and we conclude that 70% or so of the decision to buy imported product instead of domestic product is price-driven. We can buy it there for 20, 30, 40% less than here, therefore we'll go there. And so then the question is, why is there so much of a difference in manufacturing cost there from here? And it comes down to the the, the dollar being 20 or 30% higher than a than a then would be determined just by trade in goods is driven high by the dollar being the reserve currency, for example. Uh, we don't have the skilled workforce of a Germany that's that allows you to have high wages and still be productive. Uh, we don't have a value added tax. For most of the of the last decades, our corporate income tax has been the highest in the world. So we've got all kinds of things that mitigate against investment, skilled workforce, productivity, and therefore, uh, competitive prices. And so if, if we want to bring back, successfully bring back semiconductors, uh, EV batteries, all these things that, that everybody's talking about now, we have we have to get the, uh, the man- have to get US manufacturing costs to be competitive. Well, let me let me ask you about that, because there's been a, you know, uh, an evolution from originally just trying to find low wage uh, arbitrage to the com- the countries that have um, that have grown up as a result of having gotten the increased business and now are more mature themselves, are they competing now on things other than labor cost, manufacturing value add? Are they innovating? Are they um, uh, tougher competitors than they used to be? Ch- China specifically is not as tough a competitor as it used to be. Uh, 40% of the reshoring that has happened in the last 10 years has been from China. And the, uh, the, the Chinese, specifically the Chinese wages have gone up at 10 to 15% per year for the last 15 or 20 years. Now their productivity has gone up very rapidly also, but not as fast as the wages. So even before COVID, even before the trade wars, uh, work was flowing out of China. So the, let me, let me real- get JR in on this a little bit. Um, so you're in the business, my sense of your business, which is the coatings and film business, it's a relatively um, automated and machine um, focused uh, business, right? I mean, they, there's- it, it, It's typically more capital intensive than it is labor intensive. I mean, yeah, still so, so what are you experiencing as far as reshoring or as ter- in terms of where you decide to put a plant uh, in order to be competitive, what we typically look at is, is what market are we trying to enter. So, if you know, for us, localized speed flexibility is a critical differentiator for us to win business. Um, so, being that we are you know a French-owned company, you know, we start out in, in France and in, in the European centric. 
decided to get into the U.S. market and expand the Americas. So we made a direct investment um, initial presence in the early 2000 and have done acquisitions since to expand our capacity and our footprint. So it's it's really looking at the markets that we're participating in and having a physical presence for us to compete with our competitors. It's the, the main driver right now beyond price is lead times. How can we quickly service um, and match the the demand that's growing right now? So the so what you're what you're really saying is that there's no um, overarching desire one way or the other to place plants in one place or another, other than from a Franco-centric perspective, wanting to put as much in France as possible because it's a French company. But there's no um, there's no kind of overarching let's move to to the US or let's move to someplace. It's really local market conditions are driving those decisions. Correct. Typically continental structured. So we look at emerging markets. Um, you know, if we look at Asia, India is the emerging market for our business that we're looking to enter. So putting together a strategy for entrance into that market. So it really is market driven for us um, from where we want to gain share and want to grow our business. Well, I, I think this is very important for the discussion because you know, there's kind of an underlying expectation from an American-centric perspective that somehow we should have business refocused on being part of the, being focused in the U.S., right? Because when the U.S. started to gain industrial dominance uh, and we became the 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 400-pound gorilla in the world economy, um, you know, our own patriotism clicked in, right? And we said, hey, like, we're the place. Um, is this no longer a factor in sophisticated global management of, of companies? So, Marshall, what, what I think Jared's describing there, and to answer your question, is a trend we're seeing with some of our clients, which is regionalized production strategies. So being closer to the markets that you're intending to serve. So rather than one mega plant to serve the whole globe, you have multiple regional serving uh, manufacturing plants. Which and makes sense. That it makes helps sense because you're going to reduce your overall time. cost of getting getting things to market. But from an expectation yeah. of, of Americans' perspective, right? America is no longer necessarily the largest market for things. The population and the and the 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 discretionary income to buy things is slowly shifting to other countries as they mature. So is it reasonable to think that we will be able to actually maintain kind of industrial dominance or, or is, is reshoring really realistic? And well, for, first, U.S. is no longer the largest industrial economy. China produces really 30, 40, 50 percent more than we do. So we're not the biggest manufacturer, but we are still the biggest consumer because they make it, we buy it. <laughs> okay, and uh, And so... In the, I, th I think in the long run, it's you have to. I have to believe that work will come back. For, first, perspective: when we started in 2010, in that year, 6,000 jobs were announced to come back. Last year, 160,000 were announced. This year, we expect over 200,000 announced to come back. Okay, so so there's been a, a wonderful upward trend like this over the last 10 or 12 years. So so the trend is is in the right direction. Uh, and in the long run, the the U.S. will not be able to continue to have a $900 billion per year goods trade deficit and a trillion or multi-trillion dollar budget deficit 
because the rest of the world won't accept that. And eventually the dollar will collapse and then the U.S. will be competitive again. So one way or the other, the U.S. will be competitive. And and so the question is, do we wait for the collapse and have it happen? Or does the country and do the companies uh, manage that and make smart decisions now acting in their own self-interest by, by doing the math, by calculating total cost of ownership instead of just looking at the wage rate or the FOB price? And so we, we say... We say doing the math is the right decision. But I just maybe I want to just ask Michelle for a second here. When you consult with companies, do you find a greater consciousness of their self-interest, or is it still we can cut, we can save ten cents, and I can earn another twenty, you know, million dollar bonus if I slash everything here and put everything in in China or someplace else? Is there any change in the corporate consciousness, Michelle? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a balance. Cost is is still really important. However, what has gained in importance, as Harry calls it, the total cost of ownership, is also factoring in those risks. Okay, so what if you can make something for 10 cents? If you can't get it to the U.S. to get on the store shelves, then you've got a huge problem. So those kind of risk factors of disruption, to get your parts, your supplies, your final uh, product, um, whatever the strategy is, uh, is playing in at a larger weight than it did previously. You're, you're really saying it's the strategic side of this is, is popping up more now. I suspect COVID has probably exacerbated that, right? I mean, the people are probably looking at the fact that, you know, oh, gee, we didn't have the right parts for ventilators or we didn't, you know, have the right reagents for the uh, for the COVID tests because we don't control the supply chain around those things. Is that kind of calculus beyond the math? Um, uh, are, are we seeing a lot more of that? Yeah. yeah, well, so so the medical products and the pharmaceutical ingredients that really has become a, a matter of national security and defense. So that's kind of a whole another thing we can talk about. Um, but then for other companies, I mean, look, I just saw a picture, I think this week of over 200,000 trucks sitting in Kentucky waiting for semiconductors before they can get out to hmm. the car dealers. So there's all kinds of different disruptions here from the pure consumer side to the actual critical nature, uh, health and defense of our country, where um, these risks are just really top of mind for different executives and for our federal government, frankly. JR, how has this affected your business? Yeah. <laughs> I think Michelle described earlier, I mean, it's, it's really allowed us to assess where we've got a fragile part of our supply chain. I mean, if 2021 was a year of reflection, it was definitely on supply chain management. And, you know, we're looking constantly to evaluate how we can strengthen it, make it more flexible, or that's localizing it. I mean, we have a fair balance of importing versus domestic supply chain where we're set up today. We're trying to increase that domestic supply chain part as much as possible, install more capacity, uh, but also find partners that we can rely on in the future because we've seen so many disruptions come through, whether it's on the freight side, whether it's on labor shortage, whether it's on price increase, um, you know, supply chains have been really tested in the last six to eight months. And even the best have, have seen issues that they have to address. And so uh, we've got to be proactive in what we're going for. We've got a lot of work ahead of us over the next couple of years to make it more robust. So we don't, we're not here again. And in, in, in the next time it comes through. 
One good source on this is Thomas, you know, the group that used to put out Thomas Register. And they've done surveys every couple of months on this. And the most recent one, they put out a, a big report on North American supply chain. And 83% of companies were seeking more uh, North American suppliers, you know, primarily US, but also Canada and Mexico. And the 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 single number one criterion by which they were making the decision was was total cost. Whereas if you'd gone back five, a couple a year or two ago, they almost surely would have said price was the, okay, was yes, the that's main very, criteria. That's very interesting. And you know, I suspect too that when you start looking at the total cost of ownership or total cost equation, you have to factor in the cost of stockouts for inventory, right? So that you you um, that suddenly dials up the need for having um, a, a proximal uh, a group of suppliers. You know, that's, that's one of the factors in the TCO estimator, which is our online yeah. system for people to do the calculation. You know, and if you want to see a, an illustration of this, um, go down to, well, to Huntington Beach, where I take the dog, because there's a dog beach there. And uh, you can see a line of ships waiting to get into L.A. Long Beach Harbor that is just astounding. Um, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's worse than the 405. Um, and so, <laughs> so you know, the, the bottom line is, you know, how, uh, how long are we going to allow ourselves to be in this? And is there any change? You know, Trump made a big deal about reassuring and things should be in the in, in the U.S. And then Biden was elected. And I think a lot of the corporate types of bought back Biden may not have, you know, uh, supported some of his policies. Is the Biden administration committing itself on this issue? Um, I mean, we've we've haven't had a, an administration focused on this in, in a long time. I mean, Trump, you know, ranted and raved, but I don't know how much he yeah. actually did. So Biden is clearly more organized about it, more statesman, more you know, statistical sort of about it, more data driven. But he's we see him primarily his administration primarily applying tourniquets. So, for example, we have major problems with uh, chips. And so they're going to give tens of billions of dollars to companies to build chip factories here. But be, but it's been recognized that because our labor costs and other costs are high, our chips will be more expensive than the chips coming out of Taiwan and China. And so we're, the risk is that we'll go from having uh, being dependent on China and Taiwan for chips to being dependent on China and Taiwan to buy our chips to make the computers and the cell phones and the uh, systems that are made over there because we don't make them here because our costs are too high. So we we advocate for the um, Biden administration to, to take the actions necessary to get the manufacturing cost in the U.S. down. Easiest thing is lower the dollar. And by doing that, then more TVs, more cell phones, more servers will be made here, and there'll be a market here for the chips that are made by the factories that they've subsidized. So if, if you just interesting, Harry, because you know, for people who are not into economics and understand the, the underpinning of currency costs and stuff, that most people would think, well, the simplest thing to do is cut wages, which has been kind of the, the contested element, right? Nobody wants to cut wages. So what you're saying is, no, in order for us to become more competitive, we need to manage the dollar better. What else do we need to do? Well, as I said before, uh, get the dollar down by 20 or 30 percent, um, uh, ha have a value added tax. Other countries 
uh, when we ship something to China, they tax it 15% coming in. Their exports to us gets a, get a 15% credit, which makes them more competitive over here. So dollar down, value-added tax. Don't raise the corporate income tax because that makes the after-tax return on investment here worse. Most important, absolutely essential, have a skilled workforce like Germany. Have the apprenticeship program, the engineering program that Germany has so that we'll have the most efficient factories in the world. Germany has wages as high as ours, and they have a trade surplus equal to 5% of their GDP, and we have a trade deficit equal to 3% of our GDP. Main reason, skilled workforce. Well, JR, how is that uh, in your company? You've been expanding. We're in the midst of a terrible labor shortage. We just did a program on it. What do you do from the from a company level to uh, to address this this labor shortage, which is something that uh, you know I've been working on quite a bit. Absolutely, Joel. I mean, next to our supply chain challenges, labor is our, our next hottest topic in our business. Um, you know, in all of our facilities across the U.S., we've seen gaps, and we've had to really change the way we recruit. We attract our talent. Um, you know, getting them plugged in in different programs that we wouldn't traditionally get involved with. Uh, to really scour and find that talent that, you know, where we can pull in that pool and train. Also looking at our training programs, how we'd be more effective in getting um, that new pool of talent into our workforce, get them trained, get them appropriate skills so they can start adding value to our process. So um, it's it's been very tough out there in the labor market. And, you know, we've seen you know, the shift really, where people wanting to come to a factory job, they really wanted to go into manufacturing. Um, you know, I saw a statistic that I think by 2030, there's going to be about 2 million manufacturing jobs vacancy. That's going to account to a couple trillion dollars in lost revenue. So we really got to figure out, you know, from an industry standpoint, how we connect back into the high schools and trade schools and make manufacturing attractive again. Um, yeah, this is something the audience at a young age. This is something we totally are focused on ourselves. We've we've had some shows on this and, and agree with you that it's an issue. Is it an issue everywhere? Michelle, you know, when you hear JR talk about the uh, labor shortage problem, um, it makes me wonder whether or not it's equally distributed across the United States. As you advise clients, are there some places where A, labor and B, the um, the taxation and business climate are such that the costs are lower? So um I have been a site selection consultant for over 18 years now, working with manufacturers on their location strategies. And first of all, I'm the busiest I've ever been in my career in terms of interest in manufacturing investment in the U.S. Um, but I also have never seen the labor market um, across the country in the shape that they're in right now. And it's I talked earlier about the ripple effect of the pandemic, and this is one of the huge ones that we are watching closely, trying to, you know, every week take in the information. Um, some of it certainly has been due to um, the unemployment benefits that were extended, the federal level, and then some of the states. As some of the states have started to end their additional amount, those areas have seen an increase in applicants for open positions, um, but it's been slow. And so we're, we're kind of watching this. We're trying to advise our clients about, um, you know, the probability of success. You know, it's a bit, these are big 
multi-million dollar investments going into the communities where they need to know that they're going to have people to work in these facilities going forward. And so one of the biggest indicators that we are really honing in on is the, and it really is localized, but the, the communities and the areas where they have focused even before now, you know, they have sort of at least a little bit of a history on getting young people exposed to manufacturing opportunities early. They have strong community college partnerships and training centers that work with existing industry to customize training and offer programs and are really showing the um, potential of a pipeline of workers. So that's what we're talking about here is, is the, it's now that's important, but also going forward. And so those areas that have that are, are really coming to the top of our list and you're, that's where you're seeing a lot of the new announcements uh, more recently are those kind of communities. Wh such which a areas and important in, issue. Which areas in particular? So, as I said, it's very localized, you know. So, uh, you know, in general, we're seeing some great examples of it across the Midwest, across the Southeast, places that have a history of, I would say, manufacturing and industry, but have also recognized the need for workforce um, earlier, you know, early on and, and have that, have had that business and workforce partnership mentality for many years. Those are where the strong programs are. There's a number of other examples that are getting on the train now. And I think we're going to see more communities uh, improving in that. Um, but it's a, just a huge uh, location factor right now in our in our work. Anybody who's interested can get some good data at MSSC, Manufacturing Skills Standards, I think it's Coalition, and they have an index for each state and each community within the state of the number of uh, credentials being awarded in manufacturing. So you can go in there and find some interesting data to see where to, and yeah. some states are doing very well, others are not not doing so well. I mean, say but, that again, but, oh, Harry, it's MSSC? MSSC, uh, I think it's Manufacturing Skills Standards Coalition. There, there's several other organizations, NIMS, others that put out excellent credentials. So this isn't the only one, but it's the one that's been most aggressive in making the data available on a geographic basis. Mm -hmm. So it'd be worth looking at. Uh, another thing that I, I'd like to kick in, um, the, the Labor Department is very counterproductive on this subject. If you go on Labor Department and you look up uh, uh, anything about earnings and wages, you always get earnings by degree level. No, no high school, high school, blah, blah, up to PhD, okay? And, and it's clear, earnings go up with number of degrees. And I, I convinced them once on one site, and I'm trying to convince them on their other sites to put in there the average earnings of someone who's passed an apprenticeship or has, mm -hmm. or has five or more certificates of some kind, because statistics show that those people are making just as much as the bachelor's degree, but the guidance counselor, the high school teacher, the, the, the parent, you know, professors who write about this, they always look at this one chart that has the bar chart and its degrees, and it's like, and there's no other alternative. And right, and the I, logic, I, and the logic is, is well, you have to get a bachelor's degree because you have, have to get the degree. And and in fact, what we're finding with students is that not really. You know, <laughs> you have it, to get skills. The students, are, the students coming out of our programs are getting okay jobs, but these are not, um, you know, they're they're above burger flipping. 
but it's hardly, um, I think manufacturing careers are paying far better. Yeah, I mean, like we find in Marshall and I have worked on the space industry here in California. It's one of the last strong industries we have. Um, And, um, you know, those people who are working, you know, building those spaceships who are machinists and welders, they're doing very, very well. Um, So, you know, it seems that the the big problem, it seems to me, is that we've, you know, we've sold uh, our young people a bill of goods. You know, mm-hmm. well, if I get a degree in, you know, in advanced consciousness from Cal State Fullerton, you know, the world is going to come rushing in to, to <laughs> offer me a job. And, and and that really isn't happening. And actually, in the data that we're looking at now, uh, exactly um, as, you know, Harry suggested, people with, with technical degrees, two-year degrees, certificates do better than the four-year degrees. And what we're finding and there's been some very good, there's a very good piece in City Journal about this now, is that, that and, you know, Harry, you didn't mention it, but that that same person who goes to the four-year college and maybe gets a graduate degree is so in debt. Whereas exactly. I assume yeah. that if you, if you go to, let's say, Ohio to a skills training place, how, how expensive is it going to be relative to as as a parent about to send uh, my youngest to college? You know, it's enough to make you want to want to move to a different country. <laughs> well, if you if you go into an apprenticeship program, you're getting paid a decent livable wage as an apprentice, and the company is typically paying the tuition for you to go to community college and get the technical courses that you have to take. JR, do you have that set up in your company? As you mentioned, I mean, a lot of companies now tuition reimbursement. I mean, for our own technical team and our maintenance team, we're upskilling them and we're covering the costs. I mean, the amount of shortage that we're going to see specifically manufacturing for trade skills, electricians, millwrights, welders, that's a huge trend. That was already an issue prior to COVID before kind of this labor, this major labor gap we're seeing. It's only accelerated um, as a sense. And, you know, as we see the kind of the, the boomer generation retire out, a lot of skills, you know, 40, 50 years of electrical work, of, of maintenance work um, that we're struggling to find a backfill for. Yeah, for real, real tribal knowledge that Marshall, makes businesses yeah. really work. Yeah. Marshall, you asked, you know, one, what can the, what can the U.S. do, you know, to help support, you know, manufacturing growth? And this is one of those key areas. We've seen a couple of states try to take it in their own hands. Tennessee offers free community college to all its residents. Um, I believe North Carolina is now. Um, and so there's there's some states sort of leading this charge, but in terms, and I do think that it's probably best handled at the state level, but in terms of federal funding towards um, what we're talking about here, this would be an enormous return on investment to, to invest in people, uh, financially, and then you know, having a cultural shift, educating the guidance counselors in the high schools to uh, understand these opportunities, so they are helping to, and the parents, of course, but helping kids. Four-year college isn't for everyone, and there's a lot of great opportunities, as we've said here, uh, in manufacturing careers. So helping to guide uh, young people into those career paths is is just as important as the as the dollars. Well, and to be uh-huh. fair to our current administration, I think that they're actually quite focused on that. I think this is a, a prior, <coughs> excuse me, a priority for the Biden administration to provide uh, greater access um, for to to education. But I've got a, a question that's kind of like the 
elephant in the room about reshoring, and that is inflation. So, you know, Harry, you talk about let's drop the currency by 20% in order to be able Mm -hmm. to make America competitive in that arbitrage. Um, What about inflation? Don't we, aren't we worried, certainly the government's going to be worried that this is going to translate into massive uh, inflationary period. First, it would not be massive. Um, To put it in perspective, um, I I mentioned this TCO estimator that we have to do the calculation. And I took the first 180 cases of China versus the US where a user had done the calculation. And from their data, uh, we conclude that in about 8% of the cases, the US had the lowest price, but in 32%, we had the lowest total cost. So we conclude that about 20% of what's now imported from China and even bigger percentages from Europe could be brought back and and not raise the consumer price and and the company be equally profitable or more profitable. So the first 20 or 30% of imports can be brought back with no impact on inflation and 20 or 30% of imports is on the order of $700 billion a year, which is roughly the size of our trade deficit. So, so as a first, first approximation, we can get rid of three quarters of the problem with zero inflation. And then to get, if you, if you want to get rid of all of the trade deficit, you'd be digging into some items where the cost is. See, it, the only, the real reason to cut the dollar is to get the companies to focus on doing it. Because if, if we could get them to focus on doing the math without cutting the dollar, they would do it on their own. Mm. <laughs> but they, but I have, in 11 years, I have failed to convince them to bring back <laughs> 5 million. We've only got them to bring back 1 million so far. <laughs> well, that brings up the, <clears throat> that brings up the question of what's next. What, what do you guys think is, is going to play out here? What's well, your the, predictions for the future? This year is well, very good. Wh- this year is the- booming. Go ahead, Michelle. Well, just this, I'm going to tie in a question you asked earlier, Marshall, about the administration's focus, and and um, you know the the Trump administration had, as a result of COVID, and and again exposure to the uh, fragile supply chains related to our medical products, um, formed a funding, um, really actually through the Department of Defense program to reshore some of those really critical items, PPE, pharmaceutical ingredients, et cetera. And that program did, has continued through the Biden administration. That was one that they did not cancel. And they have awarded some grants towards that. So uh, as far as reshoring some of these critical items, we're seeing it. We're working on some projects specifically related to that effort. Um, And so that kind of support certainly at the federal level is key. You know, I think as from a defense standpoint, you know, we can't find ourselves in a position again where we can't protect our own um, residents. So that, I see that continuing. And um, some of this, you know, support is important to help that. So it kind of takes out some of the typical you know, total cost of ownership comparison, and it's giving it additional um, additional fuel to, to accelerate it. Then we see it with some of our, you know, we're such a reliant society now on technology. So arguably the semiconductor 
industry, it should be right there with it or could be, you know? So seeing how, how critical some of these items are to the success of our uh, own economy, um, as long as, as our government continues to prioritize some of that, we're going to see that. And, and others may, um, may follow just for some of the other reasons we've talked about, which is the benefits um, of being closer to the markets you're going to serve to eliminate some of those risk factors, to respond better to consumer demand, to um, be flexible to what they want. So um, we're seeing a still uh, a pretty high upswing on reshoring activity uh, in the near future. JR, what, what, how does it look for you? For your I, I think you're, I think you're seeing a lot of companies focusing on supply chain. If they hadn't focused on it before, they're definitely focused on it now. Um, I think commercially, what we're preparing for is customers that were single sourced are no longer going to be single sourced. That they're going to be looking for second and third sources, right, to, to hedge any type of risk in the future. Companies that weren't focusing or investing on their workforce, they're going to be focusing now. They're going to be looking at alternative strategies. You know, the same tricks and tools aren't working. So how do we look at new ways of recruiting a workforce and making them add value? The other thing we're seeing is consolidation in the industry. You know, companies are sitting on excess cash at the moment. That's cheap. But we're seeing companies being bought out and, and less players, let's say, out there. So you know, let's say family-owned businesses, prime time to sell their business. Um, so we're seeing a lot of mergers and acquisitions out in the industry. And that's changing the supply chain landscape as well. So a couple of those things coming through, but the supply chain effort and the labor force are not going to be a short-term issue. It's things that we're going to be battling for the next couple of years. Yeah. And Look, Harry, last word to you. Where, where do you see this going? Well, again, I this year is booming. It's been very good. Significantly helped by the Biden administration. Um, companies have been burned. And and you know, one thing that I that is a real risk. China often talks about decoupling. So I've got some friends who are sinologists, and they they're convinced that China is so mad because of Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, what we've done about the Uyghurs, the uh, trade war, Trump, et cetera, that China at some point in time, within months maybe, might say, oh, we will not ship anything to the United States. I mean, total embargo on shipments to the United States. Now, is that a 1% chance or a 10%? I don't know the answer to that. But if I were a company and I were, and my business was 100% dependent on uh, product coming in from China, critical components and so on, I wouldn't take that risk. I'd, I'd find, an, at least I'd go to Vietnam or Cambodia or somewhere else, And but I'd bring a significant portion, at least one source of key things back to the United States. Because if, if if the Chinese ever did that, you know, they invade Taiwan, we do something, they, they shut us off, and, and your company is entirely dependent on those products, you're out of business, you're bankrupt. Yeah. And, that, and the country's destroyed. So so in the interest of the company, in the interest of the of the customers of the country, it's uh, it makes sense to bring a, a reasonable portion of most everything back to the United States just to avoid those risks. Well, that's a scary thought. Yes. Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> the um, you know, it's interesting to think about whether that really would happen, whether they'd want to cut themselves off from their market in that way, which I find is kind of unrealistic. So I'm not I don't think I'm going to lose sleep over it, but it is it is a scary prospect. But, you know, you're the first of all, thank you to the, to the three of you for for really a stimulating conversation, you know, where we came out here as we've talked about. 
um, the need for a complete change in our approach to education, uh, focusing more on vocational education, need to look at the currency, need to look at um, continued ways of, um, of uh, helping companies get more control over their supply chain. So you've helped to highlight these issues and thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And and I, I think that this is a discussion that should be going on. And what's encouraging to me is it's one of the very few issues where you find many Democrats and Republicans in agreement. And and I think, you know, you can have a Sherrod Brown in Ohio and you, and, and you can have a Rob Portman and they're going to support some of the same thing. So anyway, given this this the, the fact that uh, not everything has been working out so great in, in the rest of the world at least there's something maybe positive here thank you thank you thank you